Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to this event. Uh, I must say before I start that uh, we acknowledge in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that uh, this gallery is located on the land from which the Wurundjeri and their forebears are the traditional people, and we recognize the cultural and historical significance of this land to these people. Well, um, many of you, if you've been walking up um, Swanson Street in the last few months, will have seen our beautiful uh, purple and green neon sign that says Music, Melbourne and Me, which has been an ex exhibition in collaboration with RMIT, University RMIT Gallery, and the Mushroom Group. And this is part of a number of um, events that we've been putting on. Um, the exhibition, which is still on till February the 22nd, so you're very welcome if you haven't been to come along to it and have a look. Um, you'll be very welcome indeed. And um, as part of that exhibition, we have a really beautiful, gorgeous uh, catalogue, which even if I flash before your eyes right now, you'll see the wonderful colours that await you in the exhibition. And uh, they are well worth the $25 if you'd like to... Um, have one of those because the exhibition explores 40 years of popular music and mushrooms association with popular music and culture in Melbourne. Um, well, I guess um, it's pretty, a pretty amazing uh, exhibition to put on with Suzanne Davis here, who is the gallery director, and uh, it's been very, she's been very generous to me to allow me to be part of that. So thank you, Suzanne. That's really great. Well, um, some of the key things about the exhibition are to do with memory and nostalgia and music, of course, and um, celebrity and all, many things that we associate with the music that excites us. And uh, t tonight uh, we will be covering some of those um, um, topics as well. But of course, um, we will be in conversation with one of, of Australia's most admired and successful musicians, uh, Mark Seymour, who uh, not only is so well known, of course, for his uh, role, leading role in Hunters and Collectors, but also for his incredibly um, successful solo career, which he's in full flight, certainly at the moment, and perhaps he'll tell us about that. Um, but for the moment, and there will be an opportunity later on um, um, for you to ask some questions yourself. Um, I'd really like you to uh, help me uh, welcome Mark Seymour uh, as he comes. Thank you, Mark Seymour. Fog and the 
at last all the dust never settled The willows weep and the windows rattle Well she sits by the window in a blue rubber chair to um, move a little furniture around here and welcome everyone <coughs> else who's coming here. Right, so, Mark, that was great. As I, as I, I was listening to you, I, I felt um, this, is, this is sort of being close to those vibrations, the music that we experience in live events and how it transports us to um, that place that music can do. And, uh, okay, 
But um, we met uh, about um, a week ago to talk about this, didn't we, Mark? And uh, one of the things that came up, uh, transpired, was that uh, we both have a Mrs. Brown in our lives. <laughs> uh, my Mrs. Brown uh, was a music teacher who smoked cigarettes constantly right. at the piano in the classroom and the ash fell on the ivories. Uh, she played sublimely uh, Chopin and Liszt. Can you tell us about your Mrs. Brown? Oh, well, I had several Miss Br Mrs. Browns. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, it was a long and difficult journey. Um, uh, the, the biggest, well, I had piano teachers and mum and dad, or mother, my mum particularly, was very encouraging and forceful in her determination that we'd be taught to play in music instruments and... Uh, but I think my mother really was the big one. She, she was very enthusiastic and quite... Uh, she wasn't particularly literate, musically literate, but she loved singing. Mm. And uh, I, it just it really affected me from quite an early age. So although I spent, um, you know, a fairly normal childhood, but it wasn't really until I got to my late teens when I realised I actually really wanted to be a singer. So, but it was definitely in me, in me to do that. Mm. That, um, <coughs> that point when you're a very young child and you're singing with your mother quite naturally and, um, and just experiencing music at home and everywhere and, and there comes a point when you make a decision but just to stay with that, um, that um, early experience of music and, 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 and you were, were, you considered kind of, were you considered a musical child when someone said to you oh yeah Mark's very musical we'll encourage him uh, outside the home uh no, I don't, I don't think... It's a good question, because I, I think that... Because um, um, my, both my daughters are very, um, very musical and they have a real affinity with music. They, they, and I remember my mother said not so very long ago that she was always really aware of people in the household singing. Like, there was always human voices around the house, you know, just, you know humming or just singing tunes. So there was always this awareness of, of music in the house, whether it was being played on stereos or wherever, you know. Um, but no, I actually think that, you know, with your own... I mean, I'm thinking directly from the point of view of how I relate to my own children's making that choice to become musicians. I just think it's actually entirely up to them. You know, I just think it's personal. It's quite an internal process. And my, I have no idea whether my kids are going to end up singing professionally or not. You know, but. My grandparents used to say to me, oh, of course, in the days before radio and television, we all used to gather around the piano and sing, etc. And do you think there's enough singing going along in general? Or, or do we need to sing a bit more? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by the fact that my eldest daughter has become completely immersed in the festival, the, the, the live music scene. She's completely devoted to just going out to see bands at festivals. You know, she's at that critical age. She's 20 years old. She's been doing it for about two years or possibly, you know, actually longer. But I just think there's an, an extraordinary level of enthusiasm amongst Australian kids to consume live music, you know. It's almost an insatiable uh, phenomenon, you know. It's, it, the, you know, sometimes people... I get asked periodically, you know, what do you think of the live music scene? You know, what about the pokies? You know, you know, it's all really bad. You know, things are just winding down. Well, they're not. You know, 
there's an incredible enthusiasm for music in Australia <coughs> that's quite, it's a force of nature. You know, I think it's really endemic in our culture. And to watch, as I said, my eldest daughter kind of just launching herself into that circuit, you know, mm. it's sort of, it's incredibly reassuring, I think. Yeah. You know. There was, a, there was a point uh, maybe 15 years ago or something when I, you kept hearing live music is dead. Yeah. It is not. No, no not at all. No. Absolutely yeah. not. How did you find uh, your own musical education outside of family, in school, possibly with Mrs Brown? <laughs> yeah, well, we, yeah, there were, I, had a, uh, went, I went to a suburban high school and uh, we fortunately had a, um, an, uh, uh, a lady who cultivated this high school orchestra, which was kind of all right, you know, it wasn't great. I think, and I played violin and did that for yeah. about, until year 11. <coughs> but, um, you know, she just had an incredible enthusiasm for it. And, and it was a real, I think I th said to you when we talked earlier that uh, the idea of playing music in a high school for me was a real source of, it was a place of safety. Yeah, the idea that you could focus on um, music in a suburban high school and, and actually be encouraged, I think, was really important because it meant that I could sort of, you know, even though there were all these forces at play that, you know, would discourage you from doing that, you know, amongst your peers, it was actually, she actually kind of was a real beacon too, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that was pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you also um, played the piano as well, you learned piano, piano classical music, yeah. um, which led you into the world of rock music, and uh, you mentioned... Inexplicably. Inexplicably? <laughs> yeah. Oh, inexplicably. Well, uh, you know. Can you explain it now? <laughs> no, well, it's... Uh, well, you know, I, d I don't think I ever really learned anything. I mean, I learned about, you know, theory and, you know, the, the, you know, the basics of, of where middle C was and how to play a chord and... But I, I remember that guitar, when I picked up acoustic guitar and started noodling on it in my, from about 13 or 14, with the idea of you know, developing a, a sense of how chord shapes worked in relation to what was coming out of my mouth was actually psychologically probably a lot more compelling for me. Because mm -hmm. then I suddenly realised, OK, I've got these tools now. I've got this toolkit and, and I can do this stuff with my voice and I don't need anybody else to help me. And... So the ego was getting, starting to kind of play a role in it, you know. Um, but essentially the focus was singing. So even though I did learn all that theory, it, I, as, I, as I said before, I think there's a, there's a tipping point with certain people where if you have a desire to perform, it eventually finds its way, mm. you know. Mm. And, but, but obviously throughout those years, I kind of didn't, process it specifically in that way it wasn't it wasn't until much later but um the idea of of believing in music as a as a life force and and actually having it um define you is pretty critical mm. you know and you know there you know all schools teach music i'm not sure how well they do it but you know if you've got the desire to play or to, and perform, you kind of find the clues in there, in amongst it all, you know. Mm. You sort of stumble from one experience to the next and, you know, as, you, as an adolescent. Yeah. You spent a couple of years teaching, did you? 
Was it? Yeah, yeah well, no, I didn't even spend that long. <laughs> oh, well, however long it was, yeah. did you ever teach, teach music? I never or? taught music, no. Oh, so we never know how you are. Oh, it? well. <laughs> All right. No, no, it's um, too big a challenge. <laughs> yeah. oh, on your website, it mentions that in the 70s, living in the outer suburbs was excruciatingly boring and that you were brought up in a family which was deeply religious. Mm. And I wonder whether um, either of the, the, your, the boring suburbs or, and or the religious experience that you, you had in you know, your formative years has been part of your musical development. <coughs> um, uh, I think the thing that really hit me hard in my late adolescence was realising that um, there was no religious experience to be had in the Roman Catholic Church. Oh. You know, I, was, I was deeply immersed in it. And there, was a, there was a moment when... I remember my parents used to say, it's so much better over in Hawthorne because they'd make the journey across to the, um, the, the Immaculate Conception Church on the corner of... <laughs> Uh, in Glenferry Road, and that was their church of choice because there was this Jesuit priest there who knew how to talk. Um, and so we sometimes go there, but the, the, it was just a sense of where the church was in our local area. You know, they always spent so much time. There was always this discourse between our parents about how relatively good certain churches were compared with others, but what they were really talking about was the broader environment those churches were located in, I think, you know. And when we came to the city and we moved to a place called Lower Templestowe, I just really realised, I couldn't agree with them more, that, that, that what took place in the church on the Sunday was just incredibly dull. I mean, there was just no passion. And yet the whole thing was meant to be about that, you know, the, you know, the passion of Christ. You know, that's the whole point, really, isn't it? You know? And it just wasn't there. And I remember at some point, you know, 17 or 18 years of age, Realising that it, I just wasn't convinced anymore, you know, it wasn't really a question. It wasn't a crisis of faith or anything. It was just that the theatre. I was looking for the theatre, and it wasn't there. And then, at some point in the ensuing years, I found that theatre again in a pub, you know, <laughs> you know, just in front of a band. You know, oh God, they're really interesting. You know, wow, he looks amazing. He's really getting into it. And you know, but I was for some, you know, I suppose I must have been looking for that. Yeah. Anyway. The transition from church to pop is also part of my experience. <laughs> uh, except I was telling Mark last week that uh, mine wasn't um, a Catholic experience, but in my formative years, suddenly I was suddenly involved in some fundamentalist Christian sect thing. And there's a lot of music, a lot of dancing and kicking and playing tambourines and, and being called to testify and in, in loud and sing terms. But that, that was kind of emotionally too heavy for me. So I kind of moved away from that. But there was a lot of music in it that of course remains with me before I went to the pop mm. and uh, found another path. But maybe um, there was elements of ritual and mysticism that li links with music as well. The ritual and mysticism of the nature of music. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know, religious imagery and um, the ideas that you're taught in catechism are deeply mysterious. I mean, they're inexplicable, really. I mean, you can't explain that Mary was a virgin. You know, you can't explain that. It's, but the idea of that, you know, purity, the, the, you know, the, 
the sheer sort of um, uh, complexity of those things, just those teachings, if you're actually trying to understand any of it, it eventually leads you to this point where you, you just sort of stand back and you just start looking at the pictures without objectively looking at it and going, how, it, how interesting is this? Is it actually moving? You know? And there, I'm sure there was a time when the liturgy was extremely moving for people who, you know, just people living in relative ignorance, but it's pretty hard to make it stick in a modern Western capitalist sort of environment that we move, yeah. we move through, you know. You but you came to this point when you made the decision that uh, music making, the rock world was, was yours. You came to this, this, this tipping point and you made that decision. A lot, most, I know there are a lot of some students of mine here tonight who also came to that point and made the decision to follow their musical passion. But that's a risky thing to do. Mm. Um, it really is. Most parents will say, and I think, well, mine did not, I can't remember whether you said yours did, but, Perhaps you should do something sensible as well before you actually follow this thing. But in the end, as you say, you either follow it or you don't. But it's a risky place and it remains a risky place mm. as a performer. Could you kind of talk about this, any sense of risk and the performing, being a musician? That, um, uh, well, when I made the decision to, that I wanted to be a singer, it was the stakes were off the dial for me. I, I just b believed that it had to work. There was, no there was no way back from it because I had so much respect for my parents, I suppose, you know, ironically, even though I rebelled heavily against them, but the stakes were really high. I had to prove that I could meet that standard of... I mean, they were very academic and really rigorous in their view of world, their worldview and much of their value, you know, a great deal of their worldview I've... I totally agree with, you know, apart from the religious bit. Mm. But to, to step off the mark and go, right, I'm going to be a singer, it is actually a really hard... I mean, I can understand why people would feel um, in, you know, incredibly nervous and anxious about it. And it was a huge amount of anxiety. The idea of just going out and backing yourself, you know, in a pub and, you know, forming a band and, mm. you know, it was very physical. You know, you'd sort of stand, spend hours in rehearsal rooms sort of bellowing and losing your temper and demanding attention and saying this is the way it's got to be it, was, it wasn't it wasn't like we were reading off charts you know it was all really visceral and intense you know and looking for meaning like constantly trying to knock songs together to, to so that they would work back in the pub you know and that is a really um huge risk there is a massive amount of risk and emotional risk but you know when you're that age you kind of you know, I, to a to a lot. You know, I believed. I thought I was bulletproof. I thought, why not? You know, yeah. got nothing to lose. Uh, are you still bulletproof? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. stakes are really high, but yeah. I, you just, it, things change dramatically as you get yeah. older. I tell yeah. you, well, yeah. you get really old. Well, I'm there. I'm there, and, and that's quite right. But do you do you still um, does performance scare you at all? Or do you just really enjoy getting onto that into that performance space? You, is that a place where you want to be? Yeah, well, I, look, I, I think that there's a there's a real stillness in performance. I mean, and I mean stillness in a real kind of spiritual. I mean, I you know hate to use that word; it's so postmodern. But you know, there is something about performing which people suspend disbelief. 
You know, they pay money at the door, they go into a room and they go, okay, I'm expecting to be moved. You know, they subconsciously throw a switch. Something's going to happen in this room today, tonight and it's going to make me, it's going to affect the way I feel. And, you know, you have to respect that. It's an incredibly important thing that they're doing. And so you have to meet them somewhere. So whatever it is you're doing, you kind of have to monitor your, your, the context. So when, I go, when I'm in a room, when I'm performing, it's like everything's... I mean, I try to make it like this. I mean, it's not always. But you, you, everything else, you just brush everything else away and it's just that, you know. And I think it's... I just, I just think that that's an incredibly important thing to do. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I remember mentioning to you before when we, when we touched on that last week, how um, young, a lot of young musicians, when they perform and they perform passionately, etc. but mm. sometimes, um, well, actually, I'm talking about here at RMIT, sometimes uh, when you see people, young people perform mm. to their peers particularly, mm. uh, some, sometimes uh, there's not that kind of utter presence, being present yet, and learning to be fully present mm. in the performance space is something perhaps you, you kind of learn as you go along? <coughs> um, I think technically, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a technical dimension to it. Which, or, you, or you feel it as well. Yeah, and, and being, recognising that you're ready, like, the, you know, the, in those few brief, these brief minutes before you walk on stage, I mean... Mm. You, you just kind of sense that you're kind of about to go out there and but you've, you you learn, but but even before you know you change your approach as you get older and the gigs change and your songwriting changes and you know your personal taste in music changes as well obviously but I think that there's a certain you have to sort of regard the the esteem of your peers with a certain degree of suspicion because it's all relative to your, the, the amount of adulation, or the, the, the amount of love and admiration you're getting from your peers is relative to the context that they, they are in. And they're all individuals, you know. And that changes. So you eventually, as to, in order to mature and grow as an artist, you have to recognise the dialogue that's going on in your own head as a separate, completely separate reality. Regardless of how you interpret what they're offering up in the room to you, you still have to walk off, the lights go out. You know, and you go home and you turn the telly on or whatever, and you've got to process how your brain's working after it's all over, and that has to be something you have to address that over and over and over again. And you know, if people um, eventually reach a point where they go, "I don't want to do this anymore," it's completely understandable. I mean, you know, regardless of how much talent you've got or um, you know how much passion you have for it when you're young, if you decide that it's kind of not, not worth it, it's completely... I mean, I totally get that, mm. you know. For what it, but if you make the decision that it is, it's entirely your decision, it's nobody else's, if you get my drift. OK, great. So if we can just move on to, to your, your, your period as, as a frontman for Hunters and Collectors. Mm. Um, um, you, actually, you, you wrote um, um, the... Um, 13 Ton Theory, a book, a writer, as well as a musician, um, which reveals something about your experience and perceptions of being a member of that band. Can you just mention a few key things there that fresh <coughs> your mind? Uh, well, it's, it, it, it's a good read. <laughs> yeah. And still available. Uh, I, still available on, 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it is, it is I, I'm, I'm not sure that the book record publisher really knew what they had. That's another story. But uh, it started selling at airports, right? And I figured this out. It was all those people going over to Western Australia. They were buying it, you know. And so it went out. and oh, yeah, That's another story. I won't get into that. But the concept was driven. I just wanted to write a story about the, the trying to collate the underlying philosophy about what made that band tick. And, you know, it, it's still a mystery to me, but... It had, so, it had something to do with the truck, right? And the truck could, could hold... The bass player concocted this bullshit theory that if you had 13 tonnes... If you could carry 13 tonnes of gear in a truck, you would be fully independent, <laughs> right? You, would, you, don't need, you wouldn't need to... You, probably not even the record company, you know? It was just this, and I just thought it was so harebrained and, you know, miraculously, the self-belief in that is just ludicrous. I just sort of had to embrace the idea. And so, you know, there's a chapter in the middle of it where we elaborately described loading the gear into it and, 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 and the map of the gear. And there, was all, there were these laminates on the walls of the interior of the truck displaying where all the different cabinets had to go and how they were labelled and... You know, it was an incredibly complex and really dangerous thing because they'd load the gear right up to the back of the doors and there'd be something protruding. So they had, someone would have to, a little gopher would have to go in there and find the hole and readjust the, cab, the cabinets from inside and then crawl, get pulled out and then push the things back in again and then close the door. So, but the 13, but anyway, it wouldn't be permissible now. I mean, occupational health and safety just. No. <laughs> But that's the way we did it, you know, and, um, and I, it was not, it was quite common, you know. But I, I, to me, I thought that idea was sort of really symbolic of the, just the, the just the context, the cultural context of the era, you know. You know, the idea that you tra- travel around with this gear, you know, and guys didn't leave, you didn't leave the venue till like two o'clock in the morning. I mean, a lot of this book is underpinned by that sense of the crew working together. Mm-hmm to try and keep the thing going, you know. And I think that was really the key idea that underpinned that band, really. You know, I think the crew, the musical crew that goes with putting on a musical performance and everything else, you know, is that sort of fantastic model that uh, other areas in life, in industry, etc., outside music making, can take, you know, because you need such skills, specific skills, teamwork, and all the stuff that people talk about in terms of industry and so on. But if they want to model, they should look, in my view, about you know, musicians working together and putting something on at great risk and whatever. Yeah. You know, there's mm. no better model. I might sit, you know. Well, I really like musicians. You know, I, I get along with them. You know? oh. a, there's, a certain, <laughs> there's a certain kind of rapport that musicians have. You know? mm. And um, yeah. it's sort of uh, it stood the test of time, really. I've, uh, yeah, they're a real breed, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All hail to the breed. Um, but after 18 years of touring with um, Hunters, you've, it says he found himself alone on stage with just an acoustic guitar. That's, I'm quoting some website thing here. Yeah, yeah. And um, it suggests a time of renewal for you. I mean, was it? How did it feel suddenly to be launching your solo career? Well, it's happened, I've <laughs> so yeah. got to live with it. Uh, well, I, I think I had to, um, you know, I had to confront the fact that songs that I, I'd, I'd be, I was 
you know, deeply associated with a very small group of songs that not many, like about six to eight, you know, that had gotten a huge amount of airplay on a particular radio network. And that's what people kind of remembered. But I, I had to say to myself, well, um, I want to write songs and I want to perform them. How do I make that work financially? So there was this initial expectation, I think, early on when I did my first solo album that I remember my manager saying to me, well, you could sell 100,000 records. And I went, really? And he went, well, why not? And I look back on that and go, I, went, I think now, well, yeah, you know, I could have, but I didn't. <laughs> Nothing like it, you know. It was just... And it's, I realised over a period of several years that it was this basic... I had this huge internal conflict between what I wanted to do musically and what the expectations were around me amongst people who'd been associated with my career up to that point. Mm. And once I'd recognised that there was a conflict, I had to go to the place that made me feel good, you know, and I just started writing songs that work with that in a room... Um, just with people in it, you know, whoever they are. Mm. And it was, you know, I was, there was a huge, you know, ego to ego went, you know, and gradually I had to sort of build it up again. Mm. But, um, you know, the thing is that, look, I, I, I just think that you find, if you really want to make that work, you know, the idea of the point of engagement with an audience, if it's that important to you emotionally, you'll make it work, you know, it has to work and you just have to find a way and most of the invention and creativity actually takes place on the stage you know like I had to go back and look at okay how do I make those famous songs work in this world you know when there's 60 people in a little bar how do I make that convincing you know and I had to really look at them and start playing them differently you know Mm -hmm. This kind of uh, reminds me of something else we were talking about, um, the performance, the idea of performance event, um, which has been described as, um, you know, imagine a, a, a circle, if you like, that's in, inside what's happening inside the circle. It's, that is, we call it a performance event. And it's not just the musician with the skills that they've brought to it and the passion they've brought to it and the songs they've brought to it. It's also the audience and what they do at the same time mm. in the same space with the musician, and uh, also what they take out of it as well. So the performance event is kind of you know, is just this kind of relationship mm. between the musicians, performers, and the audience, mm. you know? um, and and creating that relationship um, during a performance is a powerful thing. Mm. Well, I think that. Um it's ritual. You have to recognise the ritual in a live, in, in a show, you know. And in that ritual is, an, is, an, is a level of expectation that punters have because they see you in a particular way and you have to, you have to acknowledge how they perceive you regardless of what you were thinking an hour beforehand, something might have happened, you know. Mm. You walk out there and you, go, you have to remind yourself, well, what, it, what, it, what is it they, what is their expectation? And you, go, you have to acknowledge it and go there, you know. So there has to be some sort of narrative. You have to have a narrative. Who am I? It may not be who you really are at that moment in time, but you have to find that, I, that character. 
Um, it's the same character all the time. I mean, it's not actually that complicated, but you've got to find it, you know. Mm. And when people go, oh, there he is, it's all smooth <laughs> It's all smooth sailing, unless, of course, you know, there's equipment failure, and then you kind of have to have yes. a sense of humour, you know. But, but, but the mechanism's really simple, you know. And I, look, the other thing as well, too, I mean, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but the voice is critical for me. It's actually, I'm a one-trick pony, you know, it's that, this voice just, there's all this brand attachment with that, you know, and <laughs> uh, I've got to look after it and be in the right state of mind to, so that it sounds okay. Yeah. You know, so it's actually a very simple idea, yeah. really. You know. Yeah, but getting that kind of, connecting that psychological and physical moment you know, is, is very important. It, it brings me to also something that you mentioned to me about um, writing... Being in, being in the world of music, and music can ha, ha, has this uh, capacity to dig very deeply, very quickly to emotional depths, perhaps uh, in a way that um, other art forms don't or can't, because it's the sound is acoustic. It goes very quickly, um, to, deeply into us, and 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 part of the. Uh, exhibition that we put on is do, you know, people come and talk about their memories and nostalgia and their mm. deep feelings and reveal so much about it. So music's got that capacity. And uh, you were talking earlier on to me about um, the, connect the connections you make as a composer, performer, between the logical and the intuitive. Could you, do you remember talking about that? Could you explore that a bit more? Um, well, I think you, you, you can draw together those two ideas of, of the, you know, being rational about what you're doing and, and the intuitive nature of music by telling, distilling, well, it's storytelling. I mean, that, that's the critical issue, you know. Songs are basically stories that are just, in, that encapsulate this limitless mood and you have to, to you know, and I've, the only, I've, it's taken me years to kind of, and this is where the rational side of it comes out, you just look at, well, why is that song resonating better than that song? I mean, what is it about that? You know, and it, it's, you know, you can analyse songwriting till you're blue in the face, you know, there's so many facets to it because it has such simple raw material. You're just dealing with three and a half to four minutes of chords, rhythm and a yarn, you know, and pretty much all great pop songs all have that, you know, that's the criteria, you know. Um, and I, I've, well, by way, like now, you know, in the last two or three albums, I, I've, I've reached a point where I do, what I do is, um, okay, I have an idea for a song and I want to write about that. I was down at that place and that made me feel something. Okay, what? Why did I feel like that? Okay, let's just actually look, or it might be a moment in particularly history, you know, just collating information about a particular time and place or, or a town or a city or a, or a pub I was in or somebody I know said something to me, you know, and it, it makes, it it's a, reveals something about an experience that connect, I'm, I can feel connected to. Why am I connected to it? So I have to collate lyrics around that idea and, they, and the more the better, you know, just compile them, you know, until I get to a point where I go, okay, well, I know what, what it is about that idea that really moves me, and then bring music to it, 
and until eventually I get to a point where I've got the song, you know, rather than going, oh, I'll try this today, I'll sort of noodle over it, which is what I used to do when I was younger, and then ditch it, because it's not, I can't get anyone excited about it, you know, it's not moving me, or it's not moving him, or I go to the room with the band and I play it, no. Well, it's not necessarily the idea, right, it might be the music, music might be boring, you know, and which led us to the next topic, which was when we talked the other day, um, that you have to build relationship, uh, quality relationships where you have people around you whose opinions you trust and prepare to cop it sweet. If so, you play something to someone and they go, nah, it's not about you, it's the song. The song's shit, you know? <laughs> so you don't go, oh my God, my, you know, I put my heart on my sleeve. You know? <laughs> You've got to forget about that. Move on quickly. Because nine times out of ten, regardless of how musically literate Joe Blow actually is, who's really important to you, they're probably right. You know, If they hear it and they go, oh, yeah, whatever. They're not dissecting it in any particular way. They're just hearing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know? And I reckon that's really critical. You've got to have that, be prepared to stand back from your work and let other people judge it early on you know yeah that uh, that's part of the process of having a yarn you know i don't think we yarn enough nowadays and telling stories is so important for, for all of us you know and we don't tell enough stories we don't yarn enough i like we're yarning now and i get i'm enjoying that and i think that's really really well important. get me on track get you on track yeah <laughs> well, I, I am i've got my watch down there so we will because there'll be time for some questions uh, pretty soon okay. actually f- um from from you so if you've got any questions you better formulate them and we've got a mic coming round. Um, but um, I, I, if I just um, also th- throw something else at you that, that you, you were saying, on Westgate, a song about Westgate, I went in search of ordinary greatness, greatness without bombast, the kind of greatness that conservative politicians can't, politicians can't touch. These are stories of working people who have suffered and triumphed quietly. Perhaps as the world teeters on the precipice of disaster, there is still hope for we only have to scratch the surface of history to discover that the best of human nature lies in the forgotten tragedies and hidden triumphs where ordinary people have found dignity and redemption in their own lives. These are the stories that define us. Human beings have unlimited potential and no challenge is too great. Um, that's, uh, I, I like to, uh, are you an optimistic man? Uh. <laughs> And, okay, yeah, look, I think I, I think I am. Yeah. yeah, I think I am optimistic. Yeah. And, and uh, do you think music has the uh, po- power to um, influence um, uh, social thinking and political oh, yeah. thinking, music politics? Uh, I don't think so. Mm. I, d- I don't think so. Um, I'm very aware of the potential for music to be strident and. Um, self-important, you know. I think you've got to come at... You've got to give people clues as to your your own values and how you see the world. And I'm not frightened to do that. But I think when it comes to the actual songwriting itself, it's a whole more... It's a much more difficult balancing act. I think, you know, what you want to do is invite people to see what you're seeing in a particular way and they'll take from it what they will. You know, yeah. but in terms of political narrative, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a big, 
I love politics, you know, it's great. Um, it's just constant drama, it's really intriguing. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, the first thing I think of when I imagine trying to write a song about Parliament is that it'd just be funny. You know, it's incredibly funny, you know. Uh, so I, I, I tend to look at... Um, his, I'm very interested in history. You know, the way human experience evolves and changes over time. And it's, you know, it's very difficult to accurately gauge what's going on immediately in the, in the contemporary world. You know, and the more history you study, the more you realise just how clouded our vision really is. Could you um, tell the audience a little about your reading of the story from Eureka Stockade and your idea for a, a, I might spook a song? It Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, I'll tell you the story. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I've just finished reading that great book by uh, Fitzsimmons. I don't know. Oh, he's an Aussie, Aussie populist historian and a, he used to play rugby. He's a hilarious guy. Right. Uh, and he's written a number of books uh, you know, about major Australian sort of conflict. You know, he's written about Kokoda and Tobruk and lots of war stuff. But he's just written this, finished this, just published, been out for about a year and a half about the Eureka Stockade. And it's incredibly colourful, really interesting, great read, I recommend it. Um, but there's this fantastic moment when, uh, I mean, I'm looking at it and going, maybe there's something in this, you know, that, that there may be a story in here that I can, you know, uh, come up with. I mean, the idea of what happened in, that, in those, those events in Ballarat in 1854 was an incredibly powerful, romantic story. But the one thing that really got me was when Peter Lawler, who was the, the guy that got thrust up out of the, the mass of the diggers to, to talk to them and wrangle them and get them kind of focused, he got shot, got his arm blown off, and they had to smuggle him out of, the, out of Ballarat because you know, there, there were all these massive rewards going around for all the people who'd been in, implicated in it. And... There's this moment when he's travelling in a, in a wagon along a bush track down to, bound to Geelong because his wife, his, his girlfriend's down there. Her name's Alicia, right? And he's just lying there, bumping on the... And it's beautifully written. This bloke Fitzsimmons has just nailed it. But that idea, he's just escaping and, and, there's, and old Tom's up on the... This Welsh miner gets stopped by the troops, if you've seen Peter Lawler. And he just tells, he just, you know, spins this yarn and they just keep moving. And he gets to Geelong, to Alicia, right? And she then nurses him back to health. I mean, that's just fantastic, you know? <laughs> right. But the idea of, like, lying in the dray and getting bumped on the track, that really got me, you know, because it was like, oh, you know, he's got this arm blown off and, you know, he's got it all kind of bandaged up. And the fact that he survived it is really... Moving. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever write a song about that because I've talked to everyone about you, you've, you've really it. But it's a good idea for a song. You it's know. a great song. You've really whetted our appetite. And who knows? <laughs> you heard it. If, if, if Mark does that, you'll have heard the idea <laughs> here for the first time. Look, I think it's time to go to some audience questions. If we, I hope we've got some audience questions. And, and there are two mics here on either side. So I've um, got a bit of uh, just a few minutes for some before Mark sings a couple of more songs. Um, so, um, if you just put your hand up, the mic will come to you, and um, I'll try and... Yeah, so, we've got a um, question here, and then we'll go to the back over there, Dave. Yeah, yeah hi. Um, hunters and collectors, I used to 
play trumpet quite badly, sometimes in bands. And I just wonder if you could just say a little bit about how the brass worked sure. in, in your band. Like, did they have just, were they a gimmick or more foundational, just playing riffs that they knew or? Uh, well, we did actually have the incidental brass that used to just get up. We had this whole attitude about bringing musicians in in the early days um, and it was really um, open-ended. It was quite, there was, a, there was actually quite a, probably a sort of a jazz ethic even. The songs were really open and groove-driven and we'd just get guys up at a certain point who volunteered and they'd play sax and trumpet and, and that went on for quite a while. Um, but then one day, and there was no structured really, I mean it wasn't sort of planned particularly, it was just a sort of big event, there was a lot of, it was very celebratory and people were having a great time and, and, it, and it became a ritual, you know, until one day this bloke comes along named Jack Howard who's the, and he, he approached me about one of the songs that we had, which was the most cohesively structured um, and he had, he said I've got this ensemble that I write for these parts and these two other guys, can I bring you a... T he come along to rehearse and I'll play it to you. And he just turned up at this rehearsal. I said, yeah, sure, come along. So he just came along to a rehearsal, which was unprecedented. And uh, he played this, pa these, this part to this song, you know. And the part was classical. It was written like classical music. It wasn't blues or jazz. It was strict, straight classical melody. But it was so, it was really elegant and beautifully constructed counter melodies and it just slotted in. He obviously had a moment, you know, and, you know, I just fell in love with, well, I didn't fall in love with him, but, you know, <laughs> uh, but I fell in love with the experience and, you know, we all just were smiling and it, it, he, but I think in the, in retrospect, I think it was his discipline, his cre create, enormous creativity and his discipline, you know, he had an enormous amount of discipline. And he, those three guys became part of the band, and they ended up recording on everything. Great, thanks. So the uh, lady at the back. Uh, hi, Mark. Um, I just wanted to beg to differ with you about the political thing because I, I found that um, people like um, John Butler Trio, Midnight Oil, and especially Yossi Indy, um, brought activism into my life and made me understand many issues that I hadn't understood, especially Aboriginal stuff. Um, that's not what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I used to see the band in the early days when you used to play the club quite often in, in Fitzroy down Smith Street and I found the band in the beginning um, kind of a bit inaccessible. You were a bit of an alternate band until I think the brass section came in and then I found the band much more accessible to the general public kind of thing. And I, I thought that that was maybe the basis of your success at the time. Um, and there was another thing, I'd, I'd like you to comment on that, and I'd also like to ask you, at the time of um, Whitlam, Whitlam, they brought in um, um, sort of percentages of music on the radio had to be local content, yeah. and that had a really big influence, I think, on Australian music. Could you just talk about maybe those two things? Uh, yeah, I, I think... It, um our sound at the beginning was in those early first couple of years. I think it was, in fact, I think actually for half that decade wasn't particularly commercial. Even when we were, um, I think the brass kind of brought something to it, but I don't think we ever really 
nailed that commercial um, relationship with radio until we got added. Our A-list ad was with Triple M in 1989, and we'd already been going for eight years. So, you know, the, the idea of sounding commercial, we wanted to be commercially successful, but actually trying to get that right was uh, a bit of a movable feast. So, yeah, I think the brass did have a big impact. Um, there were other um, factors as well. Uh, what, was the, what was the end of it? Oh, look, I think the political thing is, is... Oh, yeah, well, Triple J's got a quota. Triple J National Network has a quota. Um, so at that time, I think the... Look, you know, I'd have to look back through history, but there was a quota on commercial radio. Um, 25% That's right. That's exactly right. And then it got removed or reduced. But... Um, but it's pretty much taken care of by Triple J now because Triple J wasn't national in those days. Like, all the radio we got was um, through independent stations and the universities had them. And it was kind of similar to the college network in America. There was no national broadcaster that played alternative music until, I think, 86, 87, which was when Triple J went national out of Sydney. And that just changed. The whole political relationship between the networks shifted immediately it was like tectonic because they had they had an agenda they had an they had an argument and that they had they had a vision and things changed quite dramatically after that and you know we kind of got caught in between the bricks really in, the, in between the floorboards so to speak great thanks so i've got time for one more question down here okay um i was firstly just going to say um it would have been nice if hunters could have broken up about uh two months later because um, you broke up just before my 18th birthday, so I wasn't ever able to <laughs> come and see you. All your gigs were overage, um, but uh, made up for that recently. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, who is your, who is the Australian artist or band that you most admire, and why? Um, well, it's a bit of a movable feast, you know. I, people ask me this a lot. I, I, I really loved. Midnight Oil for a long time. They were a big, a big part of my my uh, my life for a long time. They 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 made me think about the potential to be, um, you know, conspicuously Australian. Um, but they but you know they were part of a, an, an era that I don't think really I don't just doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, so, look, my tastes have become really eclectic, you know. I don't really have any, anyone I particularly use as a, a beacon of truth. Just, you know, I think I, I look at, you know, I listen to a lot of music, really quite random, that's, you know, had nothing to do with what I do at all, you know. Um, there's a really good line-up on this tour we've got, and I love something for Kate. I think they're really very fantastic. They're a fantastic band, really interesting Dynamic on stage, beautiful melody, great singer. Um, yeah, so they'd be one band. Yeah. Has your tour sold out by now? Uh, I don't know. I, I think not quite. not quite. So there just a few left there in, is in, the, in the Palais. The, yeah. yeah, in the Palais. So if you're, you know, just a few left in the Palais when, when Hunters might play there again. And of course, uh, Mark and Hunters are supporting. Bruce Springsteen as well. I mean, I haven't got time to talk about that, but it sounds great. 
Oh, we'll see. see we'll see. Okay, all right. Go, 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 go. Yeah. Oh, look, um, uh, Mark's going to sing two more songs to finish up with. So whilst he's just um, getting there to do that and uh, the mic gets back in position, um, you know, I'd like to, to, to thank Mark very much for just agreeing to come and talk to us, have a yarn with us tonight, tell us about his ideas and his stories about the significance of music, not only in his life, but the importance of music in all our lives. Um, sometimes we kind of uh, forget that, yeah, music's entertaining, entertaining, fine, fine. Music's much more than entertainment. It really digs deep down to those places. And uh, apart from, of course, um, um, uh, contributing rather a lot of money to the uh, Australian economy. So before he sings two more songs, let's thank Mark for his music and his general experience. Sing a hunters and collect a song, I think, just for the sake of the occasion. See so you know it. Good news for beautiful people watching the world go by. Make love in the middle of a war zone. Oh,
Now, I'm going to do a cover, but this is a... You won't know it, I think, unless you're a Kiwi. Uh, this is from a bloke named Dave Dobbin, who... huge hit with this song and I remember I was sitting down with him one day and he we had a real bitch about radio he used to come over here and no one cared <laughs> poor Dave but he's a brilliant songwriter and he's very connected with his country <clears throat> it's called Beside You to your garden Here's to your kids I heard you were in the neighborhood Been a long time on the skids Baby Beside you You run from the river When a long ran over you This is for you standing on to a bone chilling wind. This is for the failures you collected from my sins. And this is for your lonesome tears I never dried. This is for your hanging in and the hope that it never died. Maybe I'm beside you. This is for you waiting on, for the call that never came, for the milk of human kindnesses you collected from our dream. And this is for your lonesome tears I never tried. This is for you hanging in, in the hope that it never died. Baby, I'm beside. Traveler on a blind and desert road. Good fortune smile upon you, and may love be your only load. And this is for the only one who could quell my burning rage. To anyone who's been a broken man, anyone seen better Stop. 